So who here loves road trips? Let me see your hand. How many of you are planning on going on road trips this summer somewhere? Right. So what I want to ask you is, what do you do when you have hundreds of kilometers to go and the kids are in the back? What games do you play when you're in the van or the car that pass the time? Let me hear. Audiobooks. Audiobooks. Whoa. Yeah, they snuck up on me. We didn't have audiobooks. We had to read books to kids. Yeah. I spy. Cool. That has to be like the universal road trip game, right? What does anyone else do? What? Punch buggy, no punch back. Okay, and that is limited in its time. When it gets to be a fight in the back seat, then you have to pull over and say no more of that, right? Any more? Rainbow. Yeah. So you gotta pick the colors of the rainbow. Like the first person to get all the colors of the rainbow and see which one is the best. Sweet. Very nice. Say it a sing until you have no voice left. Perfect. So I remember road trips with our, our kids. Um, and they were long road trips. We often in fact every summer we would drive from here in Ontario to BC. And we, would, we tried to find all those games. So we played the alphabet game, which is find a place name. And I now know where there is a Z in Middle America and also an X in Canada, right? Those things. Our kids sang Newsboys songs. Remember those? That kind of stuff. Um, we did that for several summers. And then one summer we flew. And it was like the kids said, wait a minute. You can do this in three hours? <laughs> there were no more road trips. It was like, hey, guys, we're thinking about a road trip. Remember how great that is? And they go, no, no, no. Remember last year when the airplane got us there in three hours? That's what we'd like to do. So we're going to look at a psalm today that is actually a traveling song. So three times a year, the children of Israel would make a, a journey to Jerusalem they were required to have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And those three um, times that they went to Jerusalem were Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. If you want to say those words, go ahead. It doesn't mean anything to us. It was in Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So two times in the spring and one time in the autumn, they would make their journey to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. And so inevitably... Part of it was celebrating and uh, giving thanks for the harvest, whether it was wheat, barley, or the fruit harvest. And as they were traveling to Jerusalem, they sang songs, like we do on road trips, right? And the songs that they sang are collected for us in the, in the Bible in the book of Psalms. Between Psalm 120 and Psalm 131, they are called the Songs of Ascent, so they were ascending to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem, as far as all the rest of Israel, was up. So you were always climbing up to Jerusalem. And they would literally sing these songs as they were climbing up to Jerusalem. So you can imagine, uh, family by family, tribe by tribe, from all over the land, um, there was the joy, um, there were the family squabbles, um, there was the, the fear of the terrain, maybe the fear of robbers. And in the middle of all of that, all of these people were singing the same songs, 
the songs of ascent. So I'm going to look at you or look with you this morning at one of those. Um, it is Psalm 121. It's probably my favorite psalm, and that's hard to say. I mean, there are tons of great psalms. Um, the psalms have been called the songbook of Israel or the prayer book of Israel. One writer says that when the Lord's Prayer teaches us what to pray, the psalms teach us how to pray. So indeed, the Lord's Prayer teaches us the content. We form our prayers on the paradigm of the Lord's Prayer. But many writers say, but if you go to the Psalms, you will find an exploration of every human emotion, every spiritual inclination, every question of humankind. And they are not so much the what's as the how of praying. So as we are continuing to learn about prayer, I commend to you that little section of the, the, the Psalms. There's a wonderful book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson, the same Eugene Peterson who paraphrased the message. It's a beautiful explanation, a beautiful meditation on these many, many Psalms. And if you have a look at them, you will find that they really sound like one another many times. The same theme comes up every time, really, through the Songs of Ascent. One of the prevalent themes is the theme of help. Where does help come from? Where does my help come from? I want to ask you if you are a person who easily asks for help or not. I won't ask for a show of hands. Probably you should go back to your Enneagram and say, no, I definitely do not easily ask for help. Look, I am a type whatever, or whatever other psychological profile you've been taking. If you're a guy, you probably are more prone to not ask for help, right? You're prone not to ask for directions. How many times has your wife asked you the question, are we lost? And your stock answer is no even when you are helplessly lost, right? She says, didn't we pass by that building like a half hour ago? You go, no, no, it's a different one. And my advantage is that Annabeth has no sense of direction, so I can be all over the place and she won't know that I am hopelessly lost. Do you ask easily for help? Uh, as followers of Jesus, we need to develop the demeanor of asking for help of being ready for help. And so in this psalm, uh, we have a beautiful sort of um, poem about getting help while we're on the journey. So one of the beautiful images of the Christian life is the image of a journey, that we are travelers together. We are co-walkers um, along a pathway, a pilgrimage, and as we go along that pathway, one of the things that we will notice is that we need some help. And we need, first of all, be able to be able to say, you know what, I need help. I need direction. I need advice. I need counsel. Um, and then we do well to turn to the Psalms and say, what was it like to ask for help? So here's what the psalmist says, and I'll just take you through it. And hopefully you'll just sort of slow down and experience what it is that the psalmist is asking for, and then put it into your life. Like, ask yourself the question, in what parts of my life do I really need help? 
And where's that help going to come from? The, the world around us has all kinds of, of um, proposals about how you get help, how you get better, who you get help from, who, who you get better with. Many of those things are very good and very wise and very useful. But ultimately, when we come down to the fundamental question, who's going to help me? The answer is in the scriptures, and we're told that the Lord is our helper. So here's what the psalm is is exploring. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? When I was younger, I would read this psalm and just not get it. Because if you read it in, in the King James, it says... Um, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, whence cometh my help. And I go, what? How? How? What does it mean to say I lift my eyes up to the hills, from whence cometh my help? Um, the better understanding or the better translation is to turn it into a question. Uh, not I'm lifting up my eyes to the mountains because that's where my help comes from. But it's to say, I look to the hills, but where does my help come from? So on this journey that was often quite precarious, whether on the way to Jerusalem or even on the way back from Jerusalem, if you were just looking around and seeing the scenery, seeing the geography, at the top of all of the hills, what would you find? You would find in the Canaanite environs, that the tops of hills were the places that pagan shrines were built. So there would be poles or there would be stones, kind of like Stonehenge kinds of stones. And those were the places that in the Canaanite pagan religions, they would find their gods. And when they were looking for help, when they were looking for guidance on their journeys, they would look to the hilltops and they would say, there's the God that I am praying to whether it was a pole or a stone. In fact, if you look in the, in, the, in the prophets of the Old Testament, what God requires is that those poles and stones be torn down. And when there is a revival, um, it is often characterized by the children of Israel who have wandered off after those gods, tearing down, smashing down those idols. Many times, the children of Israel were prone, as we are, to look to the wrong places for help, right? Um, they would have the same needs as we do. In, in their kind of condition and circumstance, um, they would be looking for fertility for their crops. They'd be looking for fertility for their wives. And so the Canaanite religions would depend on these poles and stones, and they believed that they would bless their crops and they would bless their wives. And so the children of Israel were often drawn after them because the the needs that they had were very present to them and would not apparently um, be met by their relationship with the eternal God who was their God. So they would have said that they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they were also availing themselves of the help of Canaanite gods. And a revival was when they said that help does not come from Canaanite gods. So fundamentally, we would ask ourselves this morning, when I need help, where do I go? Do I go to the near-handed advice givers, 
Um, do I go into my own head, to my own ingenuity? Do I go to a really good friend? Um, do I work out a better financial plan? Do I go to the bank? What my needs are, present to me as the needs for fertility were to Israel, um, I may be quite inclined to go to the wrong place. And I may go to that wrong place still with my Christian badge on, not understanding that throwing um, my hopes into these plans is not going to be the solution. Many times those plans are good. They are fine. And many times they need to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ and they need to be submitted to the wisdom of Scripture and the wisdom to my friends. But fundamentally, I need to ask, when I need help, what am I inclined to turn to? Where do I think my help comes from? So having seen what's on the hilltops, here's what the psalmist goes on to say. Where does my help come from? Not from stones and sticks, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I mean, that, that's the staggering observation. He, he's saying, does my help come from something that actually God made? And it's, it's actually now quite inanimate. Even as a stick, it's no longer growing. No, my help comes from the one who made heaven and earth. So I remind you of, of Andrew's slideshow about the staggering universe that we live in and the enormity of God. And it just it continues to consume my head when I try to grasp anything about the grandness of God. And I come back to Andrew's coffee cup and think, seriously? Our whole universe fits in there or our whole Milky Way fits in there? When I, began to, when I begin to glimpse how big the God of the universe is, who is beyond the universe, who called into being everything that is from nothing, it's incredible. And it's almost, it is actually unsearchable. We will spend eternity um, exploring what God has made, God's great good creation, um, and we will understand more and more in an infinite journey of learning how big God is. I mean, there was an old sort of gospel song that asked the question, how big is God? And the answer in the song is, he's big enough to fill this great wide universe, but small enough to live within my heart. And I remember thinking that was kind of pathetic, but not anymore. Because it's absolutely true that the God I talked to this morning sitting on my porch was right there. I could talk to him like a father, and he would talk to me like a son. Um, in the Old Testament, we're told of people that walked with God, that God talked to them like a man does to his friend face to face. So when I put that against the size that God is, First of all, I give up on being able to reckon how big God is. And when I understand that he is beyond big, beyond great, beyond awesome, and then also grasp, but he is personal. He knows me by name. He knows you by name. He says, why don't you call me Abba? 
Now, the Jewish scholars balked at that. They, they, they said, how could you give a name to the one who is enthroned in the heavens, to the one who is beyond big? And our answer is that, well, Jesus told us that we should call this same God our Father, Abba, Daddy. And we're allowed to. So the psalmist is in, in the space and the opportunity of a long walk is just sort of meditating on the truth that everyone else will look to the hills for help. And it's useless while we look to the one who made everything that there is. Um, more and more, as I gaze at God's creation, it, it just draws me to him. Uh, it's a signpost to him. The beauty of growing plants, the beauty of mountains, the beauty of oceans, um, and that they are not distinct from God. They actually are what God has given to us, what he has designed and supplied to us. And here's the dawning thought that there's no other us in the universe. Um, I, mean, I mean, maybe there are life on other planets. It seems like that's not what the Bible is telling us. It seems like what the Bible is telling us is that this whole vast universe is here for one purpose, to sustain us here, because God loves people and gave us a place in this vast home that he has created. So do we need help? We, we do. Where are we going to get it from? Not from what's near at hand, but from the one who is far away and yet also intimately close to us. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. The Hebrew there is more about taking a tumble. So we now have grandkids. Two of our grandkids are the little ones, and they were over a couple of weeks ago. And they don't walk, they run. And then what happens? They fall every single time. So what was like shrieking laughter becomes just disastrous wailing as they take a tumble. And what do you say to them about walking and how they should walk on the pathway? You'll say, honey, take my hand, right? And if they take your hand, what will happen when they trip? You'll hold them up. They won't skin their knee. They won't skin their elbow. They won't fall headlong because they're holding on to someone's hand. What is the thing that they're least likely to want to do? Is hold your hand, right? What is the thing we're least likely to do? Maybe is to trust God. In the middle of some situation where we think we've got it in hand, and we're about to tumble, and God says, just hold my hand. If you hold my hand, I won't let you fall down. Will we trip? Yes. But we will not come to harm. We will not come um, to destruction if we're holding on to his hand. Now, how vigilant is he? He who keeps you will not slumber. How many moms here are tired out? Come on, 
Annabeth had like two years of her life she can't remember. She was so tired, right? You drift off. Maybe you're nursing the baby in the middle of the night. Just fall right asleep. Even as a dad, you put the child on your chest and you just drift off. Do you know that that never happens with our Heavenly Father? He will never slumber like he's never sleeping. He's never dozing. He, he never wakes up with a start and thinks, oh my goodness, look what just happened down there. I should have stayed awake. He never slumbers. What about the sticks and stones? I mean, there, there are times in the prophets later on where the prophets are actually mocking them and saying, you know, they, they, they have hands, but they can't hold anything. They have feet, but they can't walk. They, have, they look like they're animate, but there's nothing to them. Um, remember the prophets who said, um, uh, where, where are your gods who are going to bring fire on this altar? Maybe they're away on a journey, or maybe they're at the bathroom, or maybe they've just fallen asleep. God never takes a break from his watchfulness over us. It, never in the middle of the night does he say, I'm sure he's fine, he, he's asleep now, he'll be okay till the morning. He watches over us like a vigilant, loving parent and says, you'll never be out of my sight. You'll never be beyond my notice. You'll never be not the first thought on my mind. The one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The second stanza of this lovely little meditation is, the Lord is your keeper. What does it mean to be a keeper? Um, when I was a kid, we used to collect chestnuts. Um, you know the horse chestnuts, those lovely brown ones? And we would polish them. Um, we made them conquers. Who did that? You put a rope through it, right? Only the Brits. There we go, look. And what you would do is you would challenge your friends at school to having a conquer match, which meant you would smash their conquer with yours. The downside was that Every forward swing had a backlash, and you could hurt your elbow as, as your conquer would smash the other one. But every now and then, so as often we were at the, at the school bus stop, or the real bus stop, and it would be under a chestnut tree. And so you'd go foraging around, and you would find a chestnut and say, that's a keeper, right? That, like, that one is going to be a, a, a prize. That one's going to be a conqueror. It's a keeper. So in that sense, um, the Lord is our keeper. When he found us, he said, that's a keeper. Like, that's one I want. Um, part of the theology of, of salvation and election and all of that, complicated as it is, is that each one of us can know that before the foundation of the earth, God knew us as his by name. He decided that you would be a keeper. You may decide along the way you don't want to be kept, and he'll say, too bad. I'm the keeper. You are the one I'm keeping. I will never let go of you. Um, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Um, some theologians say, yeah, but you can get out of God's hand. Well, go ahead and try. Right? And you will find um, testimony after testimony of folks who say, I walked away from my faith. I walked away from God. Um, and wise counselors will say, you may think you've left him, but he's not left you. 
you may think you don't believe in him. He believes in you. And he will keep on searching for you to keep you because the Lord, like the covenant God creator of the universe, decided to keep you, decided to know you, decided to bless you. And so he is your keeper. And if he is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. So we're talking about a climate that was a disastrously dry, hot climate. And the fear of, of um, you know, being kind of lost into that climate, um, beaten by that climate. Like if you, if you go travel in, in Egypt or Israel, they'll say, drink lots of water. Anytime any of us goes to a dry place, we're told, drink lots of water. Drink more water than, than you think you, you might need. The Lord will be your shade. And shade is a beautiful concept in the middle of terrible heat, right? Um, I, I had a guy I work with, and when we had conferences, he would say, let's have some shade tree sessions. And he was from Texas, so he knew what it meant to have a shade tree session. In Ontario, we don't really need them. But when you understand that under the shade of that big tree with full foliage, there is just a breath of, of coolness. And the psalmist says, in the middle of being parched on the journey, the Lord is going to be the shade on my right hand. And if the Lord is my shade like that, he says, the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. When my kids were younger, I used to ask them if they wanted to go out and do some um, moon bathing. And they would look at me like I was crazy, because that's the way they always did look. But I'd say, well, just like in the sunshine, you can go out and sunbathe. Why don't we go out at night and moonbathe? Because the moon is also a source of light. It would be cool, and it's not quite so hot. They didn't buy it. <laughs> but the ancient Israelites understood that there were two things they were afraid of. They were afraid of the sun and its scorching heat, and they were afraid of the moon. Where did lunacy come from? What's the etymology of lunacy? Um, being crazy. It's being moonstruck. And the ancient notion was that the sun could scorch you, but the moon could make you mad. And the Israelites were being coached that the God that would be their helper would, would save them from the scorching of the daily path of the journey and even the psychological um, afflictions that would have been attributed to the moon, even still. So my sons who are cops will say, every time there's a full moon, the crazies are out. The moon controls the tides, right? So I don't know much more than that, but it just does seem like there's a cosmology in the Bible that isn't just simplistic. It, it's somehow true. And the psalmist says, this is what you can count on. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Keeping our soul is back to that same idea. 
where the psalmist is saying, he's, he's going to keep you in the innermost part of your being. Um, that all of the threats that are just human threats, um, the, the Lord is not unaware of those things. And he's given to keeping the innermost part of you well. It doesn't mean that we will not face the tribulations, the challenges that everyone else does. But in back of it all, God is always at work to keep us body and soul, but way down into the innermost part of our beings. And if, if we listen to one another long enough, we'll hear stories about tragedies that have come along, like they do in anyone's life. And yet somehow, um, in back of it, there is the calm assurance that God is there keeping us. And that even though things are terrible, um, I've had many people say, more than anything else, whatever happens in this, I want to be faithful to God because I know he will be faithful to me. That's something that is at the bedrock of our faith, that no matter what comes, um, we can have this kind of quiet demeanor of the psalmist that says, even on the roughest part of the journey, um, the God who made everything is committed to me, is committed to you. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this day forward. One commentary said, that's interesting that it said the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. Um, is, is that the right order? And he began to imagine. It was a journey uh, in two directions. It was a journey up to Jerusalem. It was a journey away from Jerusalem. It was equally precarious. You discovered that even though it is really, really tough to hike uphill, it's also really, really tough to hike downhill, right? You can slip on the way down and come a cropper, whereas if you slip on the way up, you may just sort of tumble right there. And, and th this commentator is saying what, what God is giving to us there is a picture that no matter whether the journey is uphill or downhill, he's going to be watching over, guarding over, keeping us from this time forth and forever. Um, my, my son was doing some drywalling with a, a buddy, and both of them came from our kind of evangelical backgrounds. And as they were doing the mudding for the drywalling, Dan said they started singing like newsboys songs. And he looked at his friend and said, where did you learn that? And he learned it at summer camp, or he learned it at youth camp. Um, and it was delightful to hear them join the story that they grew up with. And when it came to just a tedious period of time, I don't know if you love mudding. I think you're marvelous if you do, and you're worth your weight in gold. But when they're doing this tedious thing, they just went back to singing old songs. These songs in, in the Psalms are great old songs. We'll look at another one next week, but they're, they're worth everyone just kind of pitching your tent and saying, I'm going to sing this song for a while. If you're looking for something that will be summer reading, this is a great place to camp, um, to just meditate on the things that the how to pray are about. Um, what do we pray? Yeah, the Lord's Prayer. How do we pray? 
We pray with this kind of um, discovery, with this kind of fascination, with this kind of delight, and say, you know what? Shalom has come into my, my being because I, I'm, I'm just not worried. I'm not fearful. I'm not anxious. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not dreading. And I think through this pandemic and, and after, there's been a dread in the human spirit that doesn't even know what it's about. It's, it's this languishing. It's worrying about something, and you don't even know what it is. You're just apprehensive. And the kind of peace that, that comes from the psalmist's pen um, is a peace that says, wow, for some reason, that anxiety, that worry has, has just dissipated. I'm not worried about my kids on the journey home. I'm not worried about the robbers on the rocky path. I'm not worried about being burnt by the sun. I'm not worried about being made sick by the moon because I'm not looking to the mountains for help. I'm looking to the one who made everything, who knows everything, and who deeply, deeply loves me. Let me bring you back to the psalm and just read it one last time. I will lift up my hills, my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forward and forevermore.